Today we talk to Monica Kelsey, who was abandoned at birth and now does all that she can to assure that other abandoned babies receive the care and the support that they need. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. My name is Peter, host of the show, and with me again is my good friend and wonderful co-host, Cameron Cote. How are you, sir? I am doing very well. I've been on an emotional roller coaster ever since I read the book of the guest we're having on today. I won't spoil it right now. I'll let you introduce her in just a moment here, but it it I, I can't say that I'm a particularly emotional guy i rarely do i weep especially while i'm reading books and whatnot but it is such a powerful book i that's just a, a bit of a um foretaste of what we're going to be getting into but it it has been an interesting week as i've been plowing through this book in preparation for this interview here how are you oh i'm doing very well thanks doing very well <laughs> for those of you who are new to the program we are two guys who are passionate about ending, ending the killing of preborn children in Canada, and this podcast is dedicated to giving you the tools that you need to change hearts and save lives. And one of the things we often do in the podcast is to, to share a little bit more about some of the other ministries that are out there, some of the other organizations, some of the other leaders who are doing some phenomenal work in protecting uh, both born and preborn children. And that's what we want to talk about today. Our guest today is Monica Kelsey. She is the founder of Safe Haven Baby Boxes, the only safe haven organization that is saving abandoned babies through electronically monitored boxes installed in fire stations and in hospitals. Stay tuned because we are going to be talking about those boxes and they are they are they are something else. I'm not going to spoil it now, um, but do stay tuned. Monica Kelsey is also the author of Blessed to Have Been Abandoned, The Story of the Baby Box Lady. She has appeared on numerous radio programs, commercials, videos, and has spoken at conventions and rallies around the world. She has been sharing her pro-life views with millions of people since February of 2011 and works diligently to support pro-life legislators who take a stand to defend the lives of children conceived in rape. Monica is also a firefighter and a medic out of Indiana and spends her spare time saving the lives of strangers as well. Monica's mission is simple, as you're going to uh, be able to tell throughout this episode, and that is protect all human life from conception until natural death. Our guest today is Monica Kelsey. We hope you enjoyed this interview as much as we did. Monica, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the podcast today. Hey, thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, we're really excited to have a bit of a conversation about the work you do, about your book, but also about your life. And um, that's where we'd like to start. I, I mean, the, the baby boxes we want to talk about and the work that you do, um, just protecting and defending some of these, these abandoned children. But as you write in your book and as you share elsewhere, the work that you do is intimately tied with your life story. And so let's start there. Could you share with us a little bit about your journey, about your life? Yeah, you know, I, I always grew up and I knew that I was adopted, uh, but I had no idea of what my story was. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to, to meet my biological mother one day and thank her because she chose life for me. And so um, I graduated high school. I joined the United States military, spent eight years defending my country, and then uh, married the love of my life and started a family. 
And so as the time went on, I, I really uh, felt a need to, to want to reach out to her and to find her. And so I did find her when I was 37 years old. And to kind of tell you the, the backstory, um, I have to take you back, though, to August of 1972, um, when a young 17-year-old girl was, was brutally attacked and raped and left along the side of the road. And, and this, of course, was when abortion was illegal in the United States, um, even in the cases of rape and incest. And she pressed charges against the man who had raped her. He was arrested and he was charged. And then if, if that wasn't the worst of it, you know, six weeks later, she finds out she's pregnant when she felt that her life was finally getting back to some normalcy. And um, she actually uh, confided in her her mom and her mom's answer was to take her uh, her daughter to a back alley abortion facility uh, in October of 72. And while standing in front of the man that was going to take her child's life, uh, the 17 year old girl was strong enough to say, I can't do this. And she left that facility and never looked back. She was hidden for the remainder of the pregnancy and then gave birth in April of 1973 and abandoned her child uh, two hours after that child was born and that child was me. So my biological father is is a rapist and I don't even know my ethnicity, um, but I'm still a human being and I, and I still have value and my life isn't worth less simply because of my beginnings. Um, and I truly didn't deserve the death penalty for the crime of my biological father. So, you know, today I stand on the front lines of the, not only the pro-life movement, but the safe haven movement, making sure that every life is protected um, and that these mothers have a safe place to fall. Um, and killing their child is just not a safe place for them. Absolutely. And and I think that that's so beautiful. The the background of your story, I think there's tremendous courage in, in so much of, as you mentioned, that frontline ministry that you have done. We're going to dive into that um, very extensively in just a moment or two here. Um, I have a copy of your book here on my desk. I, I had the great pleasure of being able to read it a couple times coming into this interview. And it is absolutely beautiful, this journey. And I'm I'm curious. I, I'm I'm sure that the emotional roller coaster that that you have been on in many ways your entire life. But I'm sure there's been peaks and valleys and whatnot. And and in your time, especially as being a pro life leader, as being the executive director and founder of the Safe Haven um, Baby Boxes in Indiana, and, and your support across the country, I'm sure that you have seen and heard abortion advocates obviously speak very frequently about the conditions, as it were, in which you came into the um, into existence and, and your mother's situation and whatnot. And I'm curious how you put into words what goes through your mind when you hear these exceptions for abortion or when people present this idea. Do you take that personally? Do you feel as though that is simply a lack of information and education for these people that you just need to reach out to them and help them understand this is a reality or what goes through your mind and how do you articulate that to people as somebody who has these beginnings and has had such a beautiful um, and, and in many ways <laughs> impactful existence um, through your entire existence, not just since you've been doing pro-life work, but, but through everything. Well, I do take it personal. Um, and, and that, probably can be one of my downsides um, because uh, sometimes I get angry and anger never solves anything. Um, but for me, when somebody says I'm pro-life except, they're, they're taking my worth and making it smaller. Um, and so as you read my book, you know that you know I'm a firefighter and a medic. And when I first learned this, that I, I wasn't a ch child conceived with wine and roses, I was a child whisked into this world by violence. I 
I just felt like I had to prove my worth to other people. And so I, I buried myself in the back of an ambulance saving lives because I felt that the more lives I saved, the more I could convince you that my life was, was worthy of, of living. And that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. But I, I buried myself in it. And, and you know, it, I, I speak nationally and internationally. I've been all across this world. And I'll tell you, I go into churches in churches. And I, I hear people in the church say, well, I'm pro-life except, except what, you know, and, and those are, those are God's people. Those are people that are supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ. And, and, you know, the, the Bible says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We are knit in our mother's wounds and we are made in the image of God. And that is just not talking about your life, guys. That is talking about my life, too. And so I really think education is what needs to come into play. But I also understand um, their conflict because when a woman is raped, like my birth mom, who was brutally attacked and raped and left along the side of the road, I mean, our immediate response is to feel for her. And, and we wouldn't be human if we didn't feel for her first. And, and so feeling for her and, and trying to take the pain away is, is naturally what we're going to try and do. But we, we can't deny the fact that a child has been conceived and, and did not deserve to die because of someone else's actions. And, and so, you know, I, I hope that people will understand that a woman who is raped has to be, um, you know, she has to, she has to heal emotionally. She, she has to feel, heal physically. She has to heal spiritually. Killing her child is not going to change any of that. She still has to heal. I mean, if she kills her child, she's just now added more to healing spiritually, healing physically, healing I, it, it, emotionally. And it's, People have to understand that that taking a life does not justify a, a woman being raped and trying to help her. You know, I, I look at my own life now, and uh, and as you know in my book, I was one of those people that were sitting in church making that excuse for people, and I really had to check myself um, when I found my biological mother and learned the circumstances and through education and through the empathy of my birth mom, you know, um, getting to know her made me truly realize that there are, there, there, there can be no exceptions. There can be no exceptions there. You know, a child is a child of God. Um, and he makes no mistakes at all. Amen. Amen. I, I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And Peter, when you and I are on street corners and on doorsteps, that's so often what we convey convey of if I if my father were a guilty rapist, would I have any less value than you do? And if not now, then why the moment that we were conceived? Why the moment that we first came into existence? This this notion that you're not in the real world until you've been born and that anything can happen to you until that point is is just as foolish as saying that somebody who's in high school isn't in the real world until they get a real job sort of thing. It's, it's just um, insane to think that you could take that logic towards killing that child. And and you mentioned, uh, Monica, your, your speaking experience. I, I have seen bits and pieces of YouTube videos. I've never seen you speak in person. I, I'm amazed by the content that you deliver and the passion and, and the way that you're able to share your story. And, and there's one trip that you outline very concretely in the book as we start to talk a little bit more about the, the safe haven baby boxes and a trip that you took with Pam Stenzel to South Africa. And I, I, 
rather than me trying to pick out what my favorite parts of the story were um, as I read through it, I'd love to just invite you to share about what in many ways I think is, it's fair to say, is a bit of a crossroads and a bit of a, a pivotal point in your journey. You had been speaking about your experience of, of your, your upbringing, learning and, and connecting with your mother. And this trip to South Africa really changed the way that, that pro-life ministry happened in your life. And I was wondering if you could just share that with us, I guess, that how that trip really, um, I don't even know the right word, transitioned the way that you were um, applying so much of your time and energy in ways that, that serve preborn children and mothers in very difficult circumstances, I guess. Well, I don't think that there's ever a mistake. I think Christ knew I was going to be on that plane headed to Cape Town, South Africa. And, you know, I I, I love talking about me jumping off the side of a cliff, you know, um, in in Cape Town, South Africa. I literally was was parasailing. And through the middle of the, the parasailing, I actually... Um, ask the person that I was strapped to, how do I get back up to my friends? Because I literally jumped off this cliff, having no idea how I was getting back up to the top of this mountain in another country. And so basically I was, I was jumping and had no idea where I was going to land either. And that is where I kind of look at baby boxes. You know, when I launched baby boxes, I had no idea where I was going to land. I just knew that if Christ was going to take me there, he was, he was going to land me safely. And so I happened to be in Cape Town, South Africa, speaking on a speaking tour with Pam Stenzel, who's a huge abstinence speaker. She's a pro-life speaker. She just dominates the circuit in the United States. And um, we happened to be speaking at a church in Cape Town that had what they called a baby safe. And it was the, and this is interesting guys, because this was the only church in Cape Town that had this hundreds of churches. And I just happened to be at the one place that Christ needed me to be at. And, um, and so I was so intrigued by this being a firefighter and a medic. I mean, there's a safe haven law in America where you can walk into a fire station or a hospital and hand your child to a person, no questions asked. And that, that law has been around for 20 years. So I knew about that law, but this was taking that, uh, law in America in a different country to another step. And I, um, I started asking all the questions. What is this? What is it used for? And she said, well, women come at night and they, they don't want to face anyone. And instead of them dumping their children in dumpsters where it's unsafe for their babies, they'll bring them here. And I, uh, the last baby that had been saved there, uh, they named Moses and he was adopted by a member of the church. And I said, well, how many babies have been saved? And they had saved seven that year. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, is this really a thing? And so on the trip back from Cape Town, South Africa, on a Delta napkin. I mean, every good idea starts on a Delta napkin, right? Uh, well, baby boxes literally started on a Delta napkin uh, on my way back from Cape Town, South Africa to the United States. And, um, and that was the beginning of the journey um, launching me into not only a pro-life speaker, but also standing on the front lines of babies not being abandoned anymore in our country. That That is phenomenal. And, and one of those pivotal moments, as Cam said, in your journey. But maybe like one of the questions I have, and maybe some of our audience as well, is when we look at other parts of the world and, and perhaps our naivety, it's easy to think that babies being abandoned in other parts of the world that aren't quite like, you know, Canada and the United States, which are far greater in our minds than everywhere else. Um, you know, that's something that seems plausible, but are there really babies that are abandoned in the United States? Are, are there really babies that are abandoned in Canada? We don't really hear about them. That's not on the mainstream media. 
So, so let me ask you the question. So you had this great idea. You put it on the Delta napkin, which as you said, all good ideas start on a napkin, um, be it a Delta napkin or a wedding napkin or wherever it might be. Uh, but, but why was this something that you thought was necessary to bring to the United States? Was there abandonment that you had noticed in the United States? Um, was there really a need? Well, I didn't know the answer to that. Um, because you're right, they don't advertise abandoned babies. And in, in, in if it's not happening in your backyard, you don't know what's happening in, in California or Texas or New York. And so this isn't a story that a lot of people care to report on. So I had to dig deep into the stats. And the more I read, the more horror it became that this was a problem in our country. Now, it's not like India. You know, India, they're finding 10 babies a day dead in their streets. You know, the United States is not like India, but one baby is too many. If we are having one baby a day or one baby a month or one baby a year, that is one baby that I can save. And so um, so the more I did the research, the more I realized that in America, we're finding a baby every three days abandoned. And that's the babies that we're finding. They, they say that for every baby we find, there's two that we don't. And, you know, I mean, we just found in North Carolina, I think last month or the month before, a baby that was, uh, they found the skeletal remains of a newborn in, in the wall of a home, like, like somebody had cut a hole out of, out of the, the wall in the home. And, and I guess the next people moving in was remodeling and found a newborn skeletal remains. So, and those had been there for years. So you, you, you look at that and you think, well, I could probably make a difference to one, maybe two. And so I started this journey in Indiana because I, the, the research that I had done was showing that two babies a year were dying in Indiana. And so I launched in Indiana. We have not had a dead baby in Indiana since we launched baby boxes. And we've had 12 babies in our boxes in the last three years. And, and that truly is where the success lies is when we don't have babies in dumpsters. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I can't wait to ask you in just a moment or two here about some of these stories of, of babies that have been saved. I, I made a note about this first child um, in November 20, uh, 2017. We'll touch on that in just a moment. But so this flight back from South Africa, this idea is coming out. You mentioned earlier that, that um, you've served as a firefighter. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been a first responder. And rarely do I think the verse in Jeremiah of, I know well the plans that I have for you, the, all these plans that are woven together for the good of my people sort of thing, how well it fits your life story that, that as somebody who has an intimate understanding of fire halls and <laughs> such a beautiful opportunity, share a little bit about how that was so valuable. And and obviously, going through your book, you're not the only firefighter who's been involved in this. The, the person who actually put together the prototype for you uh, was a firefighter as well. Those that were involved in the, the heating and, and electrical components of keeping these baby boxes warm. Maybe, maybe share about how your background as a first responder, being so familiar with the fire departments and, and the setup there, why it made sense to have this stationed at fire departments and and the journey there, I guess. Well, you know, I got the love for firefighting when I was in the military. I was in the United States Navy and joined the fire department just because I got a patch on my sleeve, you know, and that patch on my sleeve became like love for the patch on the sleeve. And so when I got out of the military, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And, um, and so knowing the ins and outs of the fire service, I knew that 
on the other side of a wall, if I was to put a baby box in the side of a firehouse, that medical personnel would be on the other side of that wall. And the babies that were being abandoned in our country were not born in hospitals. A lot of them still had the placenta still attached. So I knew that these babies had to have medical care immediately. And who better to do that than my friends and, and people like me that do emergency medicine all the time on the streets and in car accidents, you know, stuff like that. And so, um, you know, when I launched, I knew that I, I wanted to do firehouses, but I also wanted to do hospitals because hospitals obviously have medical personnel on the other side of that as well. Um, but during the journey, it's kind of interesting when I came back to the United States after Cape Town, South Africa, and I took this Delta napkin, I just picked a builder in Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, and he happened to be a firefighter for uh, a town in about about 30 miles away from me. And it, it's so interesting because when I walked into his place, he's like, hey, it's nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And, and he's like, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I want you to build me a baby box. And he's like, a what? And I'm like, well, baby box. I'm going to put them in fire stations and save babies. You know, and he thought I was nuts. <laughs> he was like, are are you serious? Like, is it, you know, he's like, I've never heard of that. And I'm like, it's because it's never been done in America before. And so he's like, well, I'll build you every, anything you want for $700. And so I wrote him a check out of my husband's account for 700 bucks and walked out of there like a boss, you know, and, and, you know, I still have that prototype. And, um, but, you know, having the, um, the family dynamic of the fire service, um, we are a family. Firefighters and medics were family. And so I think Christ knew that I needed that so that they would trust me um, to launch in their, I mean, think about this, guys. What what company is going to be okay with me cutting a hole in a $3.5 million firehouse and sticking a box in the wall on a whim? <laughs> you know? You know? And so, um, so I, I needed them to trust me. And, um, and well, as history shows, you know, we just launched our 78th box yesterday and I've got 78 boxes in firehouses and I, I have more friends in the fire service now because of these boxes going into their firehouses than I could have ever imagined. So Monica, I guess that leads us to the million dollar question. What is a baby box? Help us out. Is it just, you know, is it just a, a steel box? What are we looking at? What are we thinking of when we're talking about these baby boxes? You know, that's the one thing that I get asked the most um, is, well, what is a baby box? You know, this is not something that's just common. And so it is literally a box that is uh, that is made. And then we cut a hole in the side of a firehouse and we slide this box through. So the outside of the baby box is on the outside of the building and the inside of the baby box is on the inside of the building. So basically what I've made is a window for a baby to come through like a door through the firehouse for a newborn baby. And so when mom opens the outside door of a baby box, an immediate 911 call goes out. She doesn't have to do anything. She doesn't have to push anything. She doesn't have to, um, you know, magically type in a number. All she has to do is open that door and it's the box is automatically calling 911. And so when she places baby inside, there's a second alarm that is going off. That alarm is not connected to the first alarm. And once she shuts that outside door, the door locks. So baby is now secure inside this box. This box is heated. It is cooled in the summertime. Um, but the average temp in the box is about 80 degrees because newborn babies need heat. So even in the summertime, when you're sitting in your 65 degree office, 
babies need heat when they're first born. So we keep it about 80 degrees. Um, but the average time for a baby in one of our boxes is right at two minutes. And these babies are placed in a medical bassinet. It's a hospital grade bassinet. We actually buy them from the hospital. Um, what you see babies in NICUs, that's what these babies are in. So these babies are safe and secure. Um, our protocol is five minutes or less. These firefighters have to have these babies out of these boxes within five minutes. But the average time is right at about two minutes because, you know, these babies need somebody to um, to retrieve them as soon as possible because you never know what you're getting. Um, but all of our babies have been healthy. Um, all of our babies have been full term. Um, and you can tell that these mothers love these kids. Um, they just are in a crisis that you and I may never understand. Mm-hmm. And and that leads beautifully into a story that that as I mentioned I read earlier in in your book and and I I would love to tap in a couple of minutes from now into kind of the journey of um, idea prototype into your first box and and meeting um, meeting the politicians that were were making this happen but. I'm too eager, and I I, I want to hear a success story. I I'd love for you to share this first story, especially from November 2017. I think it's so beautiful, and I think that that's the best way to follow up the question of how the box works with how it is working sort of thing. Tell us about uh, a baby who has been saved through this safe haven baby box setup in, in a fire department. So the uh, November of 2017, I was actually flying to Arkansas. Um, and I was on a plane and one of our protocols is when you get a baby in your box, you have to call us within two hours. Um, well, I'm really close with the guys at Cold Springs fire department. Again, it's a family. And so I landed in Arkansas and I had missed calls from Warren Smith, who's the assistant chief at Cold Springs. And this is like 1130 at night. And I'm like, uh, I don't know what he's calling me at 1130 at night for. There must be something wrong with his box. And so I, uh, I didn't even listen to his voicemail. Uh, I picked it up and I could hear the sirens in the background. And they were on their way to the hospital with a newborn baby. And, and my, I, I literally sat back down on this flight because, you know, um, for this child, I had prayed. You know, I, I had been praying that a mother would trust me and bring her child to me to keep this child safe. And for the first time in American history, I was seeing this unfold, you know, for the first time. And this little girl was seven pounds, um, healthy, um, full term, wrapped in a sweatshirt. And, and it's interesting because the fire department thought that this was a false alarm. You know, we had launched these boxes 18 months prior and we hadn't had anything. And so the fire chief, now this is a volunteer fire station. Nobody lives at this firehouse. Nobody sleeps at this firehouse. But the alarms call 911. So we know that this box was activated. And so the fire chief headed down to the station and Warren Smith, who is the assistant fire chief, said, um, well, hey, I'm coming. And he lives a little bit farther than the fire chief. And the fire chief goes, hey, I got this. You know, just go back home. I'll just reset the alarm on the baby box. Probably nothing. Kids playing around. Um, and so he gets inside and he immediately sees an arm. And he, he said, it might, he, and this was beautifully said by him. He said, Monica, if you want to bring a grown man to his knees, have him pull an abandoned baby from a box that is heated and cooled and this baby is safe from. And, um, and so, you know, as the story goes, this baby was just perfectly healthy and, and she, um, she's now with her adoptive family. She's three. Uh, and she was actually at our blessing a couple of, a uh, couple of months ago in Frank, 
Franklin, Indiana, where she now resides with her adoptive family. But you know, it's interesting though on this case too, because of course I'm calling everybody, hey, we got a baby in our box, hey, this, hey, that. And so I call our electrical engineer that wired this box up to be perfect. And we knew that it could not fail. And I and I told him this box has to work 100% of the time, 100% all the time. And so the first words out of his mouth when I said, hey, Rick, we got a baby in the Cold Springs Fire Department baby box. And his his first words was, your crazy idea worked. <laughs> and, 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 um, and I was like, did you doubt me? Like, are, were you doubting me? And he's like, I, you know, he says, I, I believed in you, Monica, but it actually worked. And, um, and so she's, she was one out of 12. We've had 12 total in our boxes and, um, all of them have been adopted and I get to see a lot of them and and watch them grow up. And it truly is a blessing for me, um, to see the success and the fruits of our labor. That is absolutely amazing. And praise the Lord for that, Monica. I'm so glad to hear that story. I mean, that, that just like, you get all the feels when you hear that story and when you read about this as well. And, um, I feel kind of, I feel kind of bad transitioning a little bit to sort of the the details of it when there are so many other good stories like this but <laughs> just to to learn a little bit a little bit more about how you got these boxes in I'm sure there was a lot of perhaps some political work that had to be done there was some convincing for the very first fire hall um because it's not like 78 fire halls had it already and this one's just following in the footsteps of 78 before them but you're looking at the first fire hall. This is something that hadn't been done before in, in America, as you said. And so the politicians, I'm sure, had a thousand questions, as did others. Could you speak to um, some of that process, how you got uh, these boxes going politically and how you actually made them a reality, just going through the loopholes and perhaps the red tape that you may have uh, experienced? Yeah, so I, I contacted a legislator and um, this was back when I got back from Cape Town, South Africa and said, hey, can you you know draft me up a baby box bill? And he's like, a what? Like, I'm like a baby box bill. I want to put baby boxes in fire stations to save babies. And, and he looked at me like I was crazy, too. And so, um, you know, he worked tirelessly when I gave him the stats of how many babies were still being abandoned, even with a safe haven law. He was sold. He could see that these babies were being left at the doorsteps of safe haven locations. And why is that? Why would they not walk in and hand the child to a person? And it's pretty, it's, it's pretty clear. These women wanted anonymity. They didn't want anybody to know who they were. And so, uh, the very first baby box bill was passed in 2015. And, um, in 2016, I started working hard to get the very first baby box. And it's interesting that you, that you brought up the very first baby box, because, uh, if you think that I was not going to have the very first baby box at my fire station, uh, you're kidding yourself because (laughs) that of course had to be the case. Well, and it's interesting too, because, my husband is the mayor of our city. And so it was really easy to talk him into allowing me to put a box in his fire station if he wanted to come home and sleep with his wife at night. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so, uh, so I launched the very first baby box, Safe Haven Baby Box number one uh, is in at my fire station in Woodburn, Indiana. And then uh, two days later, we launched the baby box that had the first baby in it, which was Cole Springs Fire Department in Michigan City, Indiana. They've had two babies in their boxes, and then Woodburn has had one. So, um, so yeah, so it, it does take a lot of politics, unfortunately, to get this done. Um, but uh, Christ knew what he was doing when he gave me this job because he knew I would never quit. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I, in, a, in a moment here, I'd love to ask a little bit more about how how different fire departments and, and other entities can approach you. But I'm, I'm curious how the process works in getting more fire departments and hospitals, as you mentioned, on board. You said that you're over 75 now, uh, boxes largely in Indiana, but also throughout America. What does the process look like? Do you Are you approaching fire halls? Are they approaching you? Is it a bit of both? What does that process look like now? Um, I don't go after firehouses unless there's a huge problem in a city. Like if there's been five abandoned babies in the last two years, I'm going to start, I'm going to start trying to get this location. But the majority of firehouses, if you pull a dead baby from a, from a dumpster, these firefighters can't, they, we just can't handle it. And so trying to be pre proactive on the approach and not having that happen again is what these firefighters are looking to do. And so they're usually calling us saying, Hey, how do we get a baby box? And I started this as a nonprofit organization because I knew that I never wanted to profit off of uh, abandoned babies or saved babies. Um, so I started this as a nonprofit so that I could also help raise the funds for these boxes because fire departments don't have money. We just don't. There's just not any money for extra stuff. And I didn't want to take away from the life-saving equipment that they needed on those trucks for a baby box that may be used once a year. And so so starting it as a nonprofit allowed me to go out and ask people to donate to us for them. And so the majority of our firehouses don't pay for the baby box. It's the, the, the hands and feet of Christ. God's people are the ones that are saying, here's 50 bucks, Monica. Here's 100 bucks, Monica. You know, I want to box in my community. And they're doing the legwork um, because they're seeing the success in Indiana. But we did start in Indiana. So, of course, the majority of our boxes are here. But now that other states are seeing what Indiana has, it has done, they're jumping on board. And, uh, and more and more states are, are doing it. Right now, we're in, I think, six states. Um, and we also, this past legislative session, passed the law in five more states. So we'll be launching in five more states. And, and it's all these states that are saying, what's Indiana doing? They're not having a, an abandoned baby problem. Their infant mortality rate is dropping in their state. What are they doing to make this happen? And, um, and we're just, we're just uh, leading the way in this ministry and this movement. Hmm. Absolutely. And, and, Maybe share from there um, the kind of the statistics that you've seen in Indiana. You alluded to it earlier how we haven't, uh, you haven't seen a, an abandoned baby in Indiana since the first box went into, um, in in into the fire hall. Share a little bit more about how this is actually changing and how these are actually saving lives. You've mentioned um, the the stories and and alluded to the stories of the babies that have been saved, but but maybe share a little bit more for words of encouragement, whether for a, a, um, a town mayor, whether it's for a fire department or hospital, whatever it may be, what words of encouragement would you have regarding both the statistics and the, the underlying principle of, of making this more and more um, common throughout America and around the world, hopefully? Well, I would, I would encourage them not to be reactive and be proactive on this movement, because when you're being reactive, that means you've already found a dead baby in your community. And then we've already lost uh, we, we've lost a child. We've, we, we don't want to go down that road. So be the proactive mayor. Take the bold step. Say, no baby's going to die in our community. Um, Indiana, when before I launched Baby Boxes, and, and I didn't want to do this nationwide. I just thought that I would save a few babies in Indiana, still work as a firefighter and a medic, um, because I knew that two to three babies were being found dead in our state every year. And I thought, well, if I can just save those two to three babies, I mean, that's awesome. And so since we launched baby boxes, 
we haven't had a dead baby in our state since, and we've had 12 babies in our boxes. And so when you look at that, we were averaging two to three dead babies. We've literally turned the tide. So these women now are keeping their children safe. Their lives are going on. The the, the child is getting adopted into a loving home. And the prosecutors aren't prosecuting mothers in Indiana anymore for dumping their kids in trash cans and dumpsters. We've made this legal for them. You know, if they find themselves in a situation that you and I may never understand, and and I'm not here to judge or to shame them, you know, I mean, they're going to handle the situation the best that they know how for their circumstances. But I've made this available for them to make sure that they stay legal and they keep their child safe. And I think, you know, getting going back, and I, I hate to jump back to this, but getting getting to know my biological mother, I think truly gave me the empathy that I needed to walk alongside these women. Because, you know, 20 years ago, I probably would have said, what? Oh my gosh, no. What do you mean putting a baby in a box? That's, that's no, no baby, you know? And it's like, but getting to know the circumstances of my reality with my birth mom truly gave me the empathy that I needed to not judge these women and not shame these women and give them an option that other people might not choose, but this is what they're choosing that is best for them. And, and I'm not here to judge or to shame them for it. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, uh, you, you answered a good amount of questions that I have in terms of getting mayors and local municipalities to uh, get these boxes. And I just want to reiterate a few of the things. So one of the questions I had was about the cost, but you're saying that this is going to cost the fire hall and the city next to nothing. Another question I had was, you know, what about the safety of these babies? You talked about the temperature controlled environment that they'll be in until someone finds them. You talk about the five minute rule with your average being two minutes. One of the questions is about what about those those fire halls where there are only volunteer firefighters and no one's there around the clock 24 seven. And you've you've answered that as well. Um, I, I can think of of perhaps, you know, small reasons why mayors and, and local municipalities might not want these boxes, but maybe speak to some of the sort of frequently asked questions that mayors have that would sort of he- make them hesitate on getting these boxes and share with share with us why that hesitation is unnecessary and why this is something that they can actually really move forward with. Well, one of the things is liability, you know, in today's day and age, liability, 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 liability. And so what I've done in the States is through the legislation, I have given um, these departments what we call in America, first responder indemnification, which doesn't put the liability back on them. And so that is the one thing that I would encourage any state that, that passes a baby box bill to make sure that you have first responder indemnification. Um, another, another thing that people ask a lot is what if the box fails? You know, and we have made this box with three alarms. One of them is a power off alarm. So if this box ever loses power, 911's getting notified. You know, the box is no good with no power. So we knew we, we needed to make sure that that was covered. Um, and then the box locks, it's heated, it's cold. You know, uh, Linda Zanaco, who's a great friend of mine, she actually goes around this country and buries the dead babies that are found. And that's just a horrible job for anyone. And when she testified in front of the Senate in Indiana uh, a few years ago when we were advancing our law, that question came up. You know, what if the box, what if a baby dies in your box, Monica? And, and she got up there and she said, and she said it so perfectly because, you know, she gets the autopsy reports from these babies that she buries. She adopts them in death and then buries them with a name and with dignity. And she says, I would much rather bury a baby 
that didn't have his arms and legs gnawed at by animals that was placed in a box that, 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 that passed away than to, to bury a baby that is missing half of its limbs because animals had, had and, and it was that part of this never truly kind of hit me until she said it. And, um, and if you look at our logo, our logo now has a baby's footprint on it. And that footprint is baby Amelia and baby Amelia was the last baby found dead in Indiana. And the reason why we have her footprint is because that was the only thing we could get from her because she was left in the woods. And so I, I, I put that footprint in our logo so that everyone would know the humanity of, of finding a baby in the woods that, you know, the, that is the worst option. Um, but if a child is going to die, um, I don't think two minutes in one of my boxes is going to change uh, the outcome for a child that Christ has already called home. Mm-hmm. And and one thing that you touched on earlier, Monica, is is the value of awareness that that as you, I mean, I'm I'm sure that you guys are having big celebrations every time you have one of these boxes launched. Uh, but maybe share a little bit about the importance of the educational component, actually teaching whether they're they're high school students or college kids or whomever they may be about the presence of these boxes. Peter, you and I are are very actively involved in the educational arm of the pro-life movement, trying to engage people even before they become pregnant and, and at times when they are pregnant or after they've chosen abortion. Share maybe a little bit about why it's so important that you continue the speaking that you've done for so long and, and other groups needing to increase their educational efforts to make people aware of whether it's these safe haven boxes, whether it's other resources and support that's available so that when people find themselves in those overwhelming, incredibly, incredibly challenging situations, they already have a bit of an idea at the very least as to what options they truly have on the table that aren't going to directly and intentionally kill their child. Well, and you, you absolutely said it perfectly. They have to know about this prior to or they're going to make a rash decision when this child is born. And so education is pivotal that they know about it prior to the crisis occurring. Um, So getting into the high schools, getting into the colleges, I mean, we've helped a 13-year-old and we've helped a 44-year-old. So we have a huge um, uh, awareness uh, of, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, You know, from 13 to 44, basically every menopausal woman needs to know about the safe haven law. You know, if I'm going to reach every mother's, you know, every mother that needs to know this law. And so, you know, being in the schools is pivotal. Being on billboards is pivotal. Um, Interesting enough, uh, in America, we actually have some of the abortion facilities that have our literature in there. I would love nothing more than to shut these places down. But there are women that walk into abortion facilities and get a pregnancy test and walk out and never go back. They need to know their options. Um, And, you know, I don't know if you guys had seen the case out of Alabama where um, one of the cases went to the Supreme Court. And they had mentioned when Roe v. Wade in America was passed that there was no option after the child was born other than adoption. And in this, this case, they actually mentioned the safe haven law that, that now we have a different option, you know, for these moms, you know, and I, I truly believe also that for such a time as this, um, that these boxes are needed because I, 
I believe we're not only going to make abortion illegal, we're also going to make it unthinkable one day. And what are these women and these men mm-hmm. going to do? Um, we haven't changed the culture. So they're still going to be getting pregnant. They're still going to be, um, you know, having sex, premarital sex. And um, so we have to make sure that they have an option, you know, if they choose to hide this pregnancy and, um, and carry this child to term. So I think that, that Christ knew exactly when these boxes needed to come uh, and when they needed to explode. And I, I don't think that's, um, I, I think this was the timing that has always been been there. Absolutely. I, I think that's a great way to frame it. And and as we start to draw towards the end of our conversation, Monica, it's been so great to chat with you about your story, about this movement. Um, I'm reminded of a, a very humorous, in my opinion, anecdote that you include in your book about speaking at a gala and and sitting with with a grand knight from a Knights of Columbus council who asked you what you needed. And, and at the time, um, it, it didn't wasn't something that was on the top of your mind. And so you asked simply for, for the reimbursement for the initial prototype. Yeah. I, I wonder if I ask you the question now, what you need to take the next step? What What is necessary for these safe haven boxes to grow even further beyond where they're at right now? What What is your answer? What What is necessary at this point in time? I, I would say education. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that I don't advocate for the boxes. You know, I'm, I'm out there pushing installing boxes as a last resort option. I'm, I don't want a mother to choose it. You know, I, I want her to choose it only if it's the only option she has left. But we have to get out there and give the education yeah. to these moms that there are crisis pregnancy centers that can walk alongside them. They do an amazing job making sure that these babies um, are safe and these moms and, and dads are safe and, and well-equipped to care for their child. Um, adoption is another amazing option um, that, that, that truly gives um, the, the possibility of, of adoption is, is basically endless, you know? And so I want these women to choose other options, but I also know that if we don't have this last resort option for maybe one out of 10 mothers or one out of a hundred mothers, we're going to continue to find babies in dumpsters. And so the motto on the back of the inside of my box is actually sketched in the, um, the acrylic door. It says saving babies one box at a time. And so I would hope that that we could educate better um, the options for mom before they get to my box um, because they can choose something way better than, than a baby box um, at a firehouse. Because I, and, and also to, to just kind of back on that, I can't help those mothers with counseling if they don't tell me. They place their baby in their box and walk away and never call me. I can't help them. You know, I want to help them. I want to walk alongside them. Um, but I want the box there for those who choose it, but I would hope that we would have enough education for every woman to choose a good option for her. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Monica, for that and for all the work that you do. I'm wondering if there are people who want to learn more about the Safe Haven Baby Boxes or even want to find your book, Blessed to Have Been Abandoned, The Story of the Baby Box Lady. Where can they find both? Where can we learn more about the Safe Haven Baby Boxes and where can we find your book? 
Uh, Amazon, I became an Amazon bestseller in May. Um, so Amazon is definitely the best place to get it right now. Um, or go to our website at shbb.org. Um, there's photos on there also of some of the babies that have been placed in our boxes. So you get to see the humanity side of these boxes as well um, that, that, that we follow. Um, so those two would be the best two places to go, Amazon to buy Blessed to Have Been Abandoned or shbb.org. Perfect. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, as always, we promise to put those links in the description. So just go down to the, the show notes, the video description, and find those links. Learn more about the Safe Haven Baby Boxes and purchase the book um, by Monica Kelsey, Blessed to Have Been Abandoned, the story of the baby box lady. Monica, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. We learned a tremendous amount. We're so thankful and grateful for the work that you do, and, and God bless you as you continue this work. So thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. That is Monica Kelsey of Safe Haven Baby Boxes. As we promised, you can find the links to her book and the link to the organization in the description to learn more. Cam, what are some some thoughts that you have as we wrap up this episode? Wow, a couple of thoughts. I mean, first of all, what an inspiring and incredible woman who has um, been able to allow her story to speak light into so much darkness, this um, being conceived in rape, being abandoned at birth, and how she's been able to use this story to encourage and empower mothers and fathers across the country. Absolutely beautiful. I, I love the way that she focuses on the education. Obviously, Peter, you and I have a, a very soft spot when it comes to education, and not just because we randomly happened upon the educational arm of the pro-life movement, but rather because we recognize the value of educating people proactively, that, that she put it very well, that it's not just making abortion illegal or unnecessary, but also making it unthinkable. And, and the last thing that really stands out to me that I, I really, really appreciated her saying there right towards the end that she's not trying to get people to use these baby boxes whenever possible. And this isn't so um, pridefully driven that, that her, the success of her speaking, the success of her movement is that babies are putting, being placed in these boxes. Rather, she wants children to be raised, if at all possible, by responsible families, by their biological parents, by adoptive parents. She wants to connect people with pregnancy care centers and whatnot but she recognizes this as what ought to be the last option sort of thing. And so often in our culture, we view abortion as the last option. Um, she's looking at this as being a necessary and last option. And, and she's not celebrating every time a child has been placed in one of these boxes because of her own success, but rather because that was a child that may have otherwise been abandoned in the forest or in a, a garbage dumpster or something of that nature. And that it's the final avenue of defense, as it were. And so I, I think that's really profound that, that she wasn't so taken by her own project that she's trying to somehow pull babies away from pregnancy care centers and get them into her boxes, but rather, I hope that these boxes are basically never used so long as no children are ever abandoned. If ever there's an abandoned child, then we need to have boxes there proactively so that never happens. But Lord willing, all of these mothers access to the help and support they need from their local pregnancy care center. So I, I found it a very, very beautiful way of tying this all together that she sees this as a necessity. She wants people to be aware of it, but she certainly prefers these mothers to be connecting with their local pregnancy care centers and whatnot to care for these children. 
Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And one of the things I loved, liked is just the unique nature of the projects that she's working on. This is not something I had heard about probably, you know, a month and a half ago. I had never heard about these baby boxes electronically monitored and uh, just all of the things that she talked about. And so it's really, really cool to see this, the movement that's taking place in the United States. And I really hope, Cam, that we're able to connect with um, politicians here in Canada as well, whether it be our listeners doing so or, or some others that uh, we work with. And seeing this this happen in our cities as well, I can think about uh, a lot of hurt and and just homelessness and some of the other is issues that our cities face. And there certainly are babies that are conceived in the midst of the difficulties. So having options like this available would make sure that these children have somewhere to go. If they have nowhere else to go, uh, it's not that they you know need to be aborted, but they have somewhere to go uh, under the the safety and care of the firefighters first, and then going to a loving home after that. So. If you're in a position where you're maybe you're the mayor or the mayor's assistant, or maybe you are politically minded, you have connections with uh, the fire chief or whoever it is, uh, whoever you have connections with, this could be something that you propose to your city council or uh, anywhere else. So um, we want to encourage you to check more, check out more about the Safe Haven Baby Boxes on their website. That's shbb.org, shbb.org. And uh, learn more as well about Monica's story by checking out her book on Amazon. Link will be in the show notes. Uh, don't forget to check out her book, Blessed to Have Been Abandoned, the story of the baby box lady. One final thing as well, we don't have our shirts on right now. Um, but as you've seen in previous episodes, we have these cool shirts uh, that they talk, they, the pro-life guys logo on it. There's one that says save, change minds, save lives, transform culture. There's one with, with cams character on it, which is absolutely gorgeous. And so if you would like to get some of the merch, we have some mugs coming out. We have other, uh, cam, your favorite, the scotch glasses that are coming out as well. Uh, so lots of cool things coming out. If you would like to get any of those, do, uh, find them on our website, prolifeguys.com. Not only are you going to receive some pretty cool merch, but the the, the proceeds and the, the money we make uh, from these merch items will go to pushing the show even further, to marketing the show, to creating better content, to just the behind the scenes sort of production work, uh, making sure that everything gets better so that more people are inclined to listen to the podcast, more people hear about the podcast, and more people are equipped with good apologetics to use in their conversations, and more people know about what's going on in the abortion war. Along the same lines, if you want a discount code on all the merch in our store, you can get that discount code by becoming a patron of the Pro-Life Guys. The, the effect will be the same. You'll be supporting the mission, supporting the vision, and really helping not just getting you know us on the airwaves, but getting the message on the airwaves. If you are listening to this, we suspect that you are passionately pro-life like we are, want to see something done, want to want to see more done than just arguing about abortion after church on a Sunday morning over coffee, but actually see the culture being changed, the culture being confronted. Uh, we really want to encourage you to become a patron of the Pro-Life Guys podcast. You can do so at patreon.com slash pro-life guys. That's patreon.com slash pro-life guys. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends, your family, and everyone else in your social circles and in your sphere of influence. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you tune in again next time. God bless you all.